This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. everyone. You're listening to Thoughts and Theories on ORFM, where I'll delve deeper into the meanings and messages of films, books, TV shows, and more. I'm Asha Amaasri, and let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of Thoughts and Theories. Um, I apologize if my voice sounds a little croaky or nasally at times. Um, I'm not feeling very well, Um, so you just have to bear with, but I do apologize in advance. (coughs) Today, we will be focusing on the book and the movie called High Rise. The book is written by J.G. Bellard, and the book is set in... Around the nineteen, um, yeah, around the nineteen seventies. Um, and wait, let me just read out the description for you. So the high rise description within the walls of an elegant forty-story tower block, an affluent tenant. Sorry, sorry, I can't read. Sorry, I'm gonna do that again. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Within the walls of an elegant 40-story tower block, the affluent tenants are hell-bent on an orgy of destruction. Cocktail parties degenerate into marauding attacks on enemy floors. The once luxurious amenities become an arena for technological mayhem. In this visionary tale from the best-selling author of Crash, Empire of the Sun, Cocaine Knights, and Supercans, society slips into a violent reverse as the inhabitants of the high-rise, driven by primal urges, recreate a world ruled by the laws of the jungle." Right, yeah, after that failure of a read. (laughs) But yeah, no, anyway, uh, yes, that is what High Rise is about, and it sounds pretty interesting. Um, I haven't exactly finished reading the book because the... I had to stop because I got quite intense, and I was quite shocked um, by how intense it was. And also because um, they use a lot of technological jargon, or like a lot of language that I'm not quite familiar with, and it took me a while trying to... I guess, uh, decode everything and actually, like, search everything up. I actually wrote down, like, a like any words that I didn't understand, so later I could, like, search them up. So I guess a glossary, in a way. And, um, I actually had, like, two full pages worth of words that I didn't understand. And that's, like, it's, it's quite a small book. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's not small, but it's not, it's not that big either and um, I'm actually quite surprised with how much I don't know in the book and it made me very confused (laughs) but it is definitely better than watching the movie no hate to the movie I love the movie it's um very well very well directed very well portrayed considering of um considering how hard I can see it being it's just that the ideas that J.G. Ballard wants to uh, sort of put in the book is a little bit tough to sort of visualize it. So everything is so jam-packed with, uh, I guess, meaning and um, 
everything is really purposeful, right? So it's really hard to take away and to put things in. And um, so when you, obviously, when you make a film adaptation, you have to make differences and there will always be differences with creative um, changes and things like that, right? So um, I think both of, both have their pros and cons, right? The book will always be the original. It will always be the first. And the movie shows aspects of the book that you wouldn't be able to imagine as easily otherwise. But... Nevertheless, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves, as per usual, and I apologize. Uh, You have no idea what I'm talking about. And the description didn't help much at all, either. Which, yeah, fair enough. So, let me start over. High Rise follows the main character. um, Oh, God, I already forgot his name. His last name is Lang, and they call him Lang throughout the movie. Oh, Robert Lang. Sorry. Okay, so, the movie follows... The main character, Dr. Robert Lang, who I believe is a psychologist or like some sort of brain doctor of some sort. He um, studies the brain and stuff like that. What's, what's it? Neurologist? Is that the word? Anyway, and the film is set in the 1970s, which is perfect as um, the context that you need. It is set in the 1970s and um, written... Written around then as well, I believe, if I am not wrong. Wait, hold on, let me check. Yes, it was uh, written in 1975. Wow, that's crazy. And um, this book is uh, sort of, um, it's a fictionalized tale of this high-rise building. And it's a, it's a comment on society, in a way. Um, yeah, um, and uh, basically... This high-rise building is supposed to be really advanced, really, uh, like, way ahead of its time sort of thing. Like, everything is within this high-rise building. There's gyms, supermarkets, you know, um, all that jazz. There's, like, no need at all for you to have to leave this high-rise building. And when I first watched the movie, because I didn't know there was a book until I watched the movie. I watched the movie first, with no context about what it was about and everything. I watched the movie, and I'm, um, like, people are saying how good the high-rise was and how amazing it was, like, in the film. And I'm just saying, um, this is kind of like a budget building, not gonna lie, eh? Like, it kind of sucks. Like, it's pretty old, in my opinion. Only for me to realize that this was written in 1975 with the idealization of what the future would be like. So, this is what J.G. Ballard thought, or this is what uh, Bellard analyzed, the future would be like, future society would act like when you are filled with nothing but conveniences, when you have no need, um, no desire to strive forward to do anything that you want to do, right? Also, keep in mind that I'm just this fan who is analyzing for the sakes of it, right? I could be interpreting things wrong, or I could miss some things um, that I didn't realize. I'm sort of doing this on a whim, because um, I I quite like the film. Well, the film was really confusing, but um, I like the book, even if I haven't actually finished it. Um, I'm not really backing myself here very well, aren't I? <laughs> but no, what I'm saying is, uh, it's, it's quite interesting, and it's just, it's so packed with so many things to talk about, I don't even know where to begin. But I guess... Uh, I guess the best way to begin is to actually tell you what the story's about. Um, first off, if you do plan on giving High Rise a go, I recommend reading the book, watching the movie, and then read the book again. 
That is the order that I think would work best. How I went through it was I watched the movie first and then I read the book um, because I didn't know there was a book. But watching the movie made me really confused and maybe just because I'm dumb, but I had no idea what was going on throughout the entire film. I only watched it uh, for the second time recently and that is just like specifically so I could like remember the events so I could talk to you about it today. But following the movie, the book differs slightly, but following the movie, um, we follow Dr. Robert Lang, who moves into this new um, high-tech, high-rise apartment, and he lives on the 25th floor. It's a 40-floor building, and uh, he moves in, and he gets uh, acquainted with the tenants and stuff like that, but basically, he really quickly realizes that there's this sort of, like, strict social hierarchy going on in the building with, um, like, basically, the higher you live in the building, the quote-unquote richer you are and the more superior you are to the people in the lower parts of the building, so that's what the hierarchy is. So people on levels, like, um, 20 and below, or, like, below 20 are, like, you know, sort of people who, uh, live on 40, uh, 20 to 40 kind of spit on, you know, um, and so that is that is a strict social hierarchy, and it's sort of like subtle in the beginning. Well, I wouldn't say subtle, but it's not full on violent or anything. Like it's still civilized. Like you could still have a conversation with um, like someone who lives on the third floor with someone who lives on the twenty eighth floor, and you could tell that they obviously hate each other. Like the twenty eighth floor person would look down on the third floor person, but at most they would make fun of each other. You know, um, yell at each other argue but it wouldn't get any worse than that so that's how it is in the beginning and it like sort of establishes like that but as the movie goes on uh problems start to arise in the building like power outages there's no water you know all that all that jazz you know there's like problems um and at one point in the film uh the bottom 12 floors lose power completely they complain um, and they're basically saying how we pay the same amount of money as the people at the top floor. Why is it that we don't get our sh- fair share in power? Uh, which is like valid, right? Um, the owner, the person who, the architect, sorry, the person who actually designed the high rise lives in the penthouse on the 40th floor. And he is super ignorant and willfully ignorant. Like he just does whatever the frick he wants. And by that I mean he stays in his room trying to perfect his perfect high-rise building, um, and he willfully ignores everything that goes on around him. Um, but yeah, and then this, you know, eventually goes out to, like, a full-blown sort of war in between the lower half and the top half of the building. As the building continues to fail, the there's only one elevator, by the way, which is, like, really dumb, but it's amazing. Um... As the, as the powers and, like, continue to, like, go really, was it? Like, go in and out and, you know, the building starts to deteriorate, so does the society within the high rise. And, um, people start to actually get physical with each other, people are hitting with each other, and then people are partying all over the place, and this whole new system sort of, like, breaks, and it goes from this, like, thinly veiled insults to straight up beating each other up and just, you know, over status and whoever's better, whoever lives on the higher floor, and things like that, right? That is basically the gist of the film. 
And Dr. Lang, who just who just moved in, came out of nowhere, um, he lives on the 25th floor, which is just above middle. And he very quickly, like almost immediately, made connections with um, the architect, Royal. Uh, and uh, he also made connections with um, the family, one of the families on the most bottom floors, um, Wilder and his wife, Helen. And so... Some people call him a social climber. Some people say that he's a predator hidden in plain sight, um, which is actually very interesting, um, I think, because um, you would think as you're watching the movie that he's the most normal person there. But plot twist of the film is that he's actually the most violent and the most, um, I think, the most messed up person there, actually. And that is mainly because of how well he survives in this new environment. Like, people are blatantly getting raped in the hallways. People are, like, dying, getting drowned, and people are eating dogs and stuff like that. Like, the situation inside is bad. And Robert seems to be the only sane one there, right? He seems to just be... Like, he's not doing great, but he he hasn't done anything that, I guess, strips him of his humanity, in a way, if you know what I mean. Um, and if you have watched the film or have heard of the story in any way, you would know what I'm talking about. Like, he seems, he seems, like, pretty calm and collected throughout this, um, and, like, yeah, he has his, like, little violent outbursts, but he doesn't, like, for example, Wilder, he, um, he goes on a break at one point and he straight up rapes, like, his, uh, this girl that he's been chasing out, like, later on in the film, and, um, you know, because he doesn't care anymore, no one cares anymore, right? Um, and he has no trouble, like, there's no consequences for his actions, now he's marked his territory, and he can move on and do whatever he, whatever the frick he wants, right? Lang doesn't do that, he is, um, he seems normal, right? So, if you have seen the film, you, and you haven't analyzed or whatever, and you are just as confused as I am, you would think, actually, why would he be the most... Why would he, why would Lang be the most, like, screwed up of them all? And if you do think like that, then you must not understand the ending as well. Because it does end with Lang being one of the few last residents to be alive. And he sort of takes over um, the architect's position in the penthouse. He becomes the top dog. Um, and he's, like, continuing Royal's design of the high rise but with a new order and stuff like that and that basically like symbolizes the i think um like the repeat of history basically except there's a new king on top or something i don't know um the, the reason why he's so screwed up is because he's the one who adapted the quickest like a literal quote from the book um is the book itself said that Dr. Robert Lang is the most truest tenant of the high-rise. The high-rise is, like, the, the end of quote, by the way, like, the high-rise is suited for Robert Lang, specifically, like, in every single way. It adapt, it, like, it's perfect for Robert, because Robert is, like, a whole weird bunch of screws, like, messed up in one. And if you've just watched the movie, then it doesn't really show that much, because as much as you can get away with a few things on television, especially when it's something like talking about something controversial like this, the book storyline can't actually get away with a lot on television. So they had to take away a few things. If you've seen the movie, you would under you would know that when Robert came here, 
he uh, had... He had a sister who died recently, and that was one of the reasons why he moved. Because he moved here because he wanted a fresh start, a new little bit of, I guess, uh, anonymousness, anonymity. I can't say it. Anonymousness, right? <laughs> However, in the book, it's a little more complicated. Well, it's a little simpler than that. It's a different. It's different. So in the book. Uh, his sister Alice is not dead. In fact, his sister Alice moves in to the high rise with him. They live on separate floors. I don't quite remember if she lives on a higher or a lower floor. I believe she lives on a higher floor, but I could be wrong. Um, she is married and she has kids. And even though they live in the same apartment building together, they don't really talk. They're not really close. And uh, their relationship is quite strained. Uh, <laughs> God, it's just, it's so screwed up, and you wouldn't expect it if you've just seen the movie, but, um, there's a reason why they killed off Alice, because Alice is, um, he's quite, she quite, like, impacts Robert's character quite a bit, um, wait, hold on, let me just, like, read out a quote from the book itself, hold on, let me see if I can find it. Come whenever you want to. Lang put his arm around her shoulders, steadying her in case she lost her balance. In the past, he had always felt physically distanced from Alice by her close resemblance to their mother, but for reasons not entirely sexual, her resemblance now aroused him. End of quote. Are you kidding me? No wonder they killed off Alice, okay? So, as you can see, the book took off a completely different direction than the movie. Um, so, Alice and Robert continue their uh, incestuous whatever in the book, and it's just this whole territorial thing and whatever. And it's um, it actually took me in quite a shock because, like I said, I watched the movie first, and um, I was so, I it like I was so blindsided by it. Like, yeah, I was surprised that Alice was alive, but I didn't think much of it. But now I can see why they killed off her character in the film like straight away because they just needed to nip that uh, plot line in the bud. Though at the same time, I can see why Bellard put that plot line in the in the book because, like I said, this whole thing about this whole thing that Bellard was trying to explore in the book was having humanity flipped on its head and like all this niceties and um the kindness and you know what the civility you know stripped away from us leaving us just with the animal skin that we have underneath and um that's why there's like the law of the jungle and that's why the high rise goes into like deep crap like everyone's getting raped everyone's getting murdered and like you like i wouldn't even be surprised if it like cannibalism ended up ha happening in the in the building because by the end of the film they start eating dog meat because there's, like, only dogs left to eat. They didn't even consider leaving the building. And what what are they going to do after they, you know, what are they going to do after they run out of dogs? There's plenty of dead bodies around. I would not be surprised if they resorted to cannibalism. Um, but yeah, so there's actually a shockingly big amount of parallel between Royal's character and Robert's character. Or Robert Lang, as you guys know him. Um, and, uh, I, well, I guess it's not very, it's not that shocking. I guess I'm just dumb, because, like, I was watching the movie for the second time, and it's actually quite obvious how, how, uh, similar they are. They're, like, different, they come from different backgrounds, but they say the same things. Like, um, well, how do I say this? Uh, Robert practically parrots, um, what Royal says, and he genuinely believes it. And after Royal, like, you know, dies and whatever, um... Robert easily takes Roy uh, Royal's place as the top dog in the building, and he continues the architecture as if it was his own in the beginning. Like, he knew exactly what to do. 
In the film, when Royal brings him up to the penthouse to show the uh, the blueprints of the building, um, what would I say? Royal? No, no, no. Robert did not seem confused at all. Like he saw he saw the blueprints, and he immediately was able to have like this conversation with Royal, and he compared it with the um, what was it like the unconscious diagram of like a man. Or of like a human brain or something like that. Um, and so he immediately had this connection with it. And I just thought that was so interesting. I didn't notice it the first time because everything was just so much the first time you watch it. Um, but yeah, so it, they actually have quite a lot of parallels that I can't think of like um, at the top of my head right now. But that's one of the ones that I can think of right now. But another interesting character I want to talk about was... Um, Richard Wilder. He, uh, he, like I said, he's one of the lower tenant people and he's married to Helen, who is pregnant with their third child, I believe. Uh, I'm not quite sure. But he's quite a, uh, as his name suggests, he's quite a wild character. He's, um, he's barely restrained. He's really rambunctious and he, um, likes, He's really loud. He blatantly cheats on his wife with random people at parties, and his wife knows about it, but she can't really do anything about it uh, because she's unemployed and she's very dependent on him because she has, like, depression or something? Uh, I don't know. Everyone in the building has, like, issues. Like, you have no idea. Anyway, um, so as soon as the law and order sort of flips on its head and it's just following the laws of the jungle, uh, he immediately wants to do a documentary about it because that's what he did before he like before everything went wrong like that was his original job he does documentaries um but this time he he did a prison prison documentary sorry um and now he's doing a documentary on the high rise which i find really interesting because um i like to think that as like uh bellard basically saying how uh, the high rise is a prison but it's a prison of their own making because they could easily just leave the building. Like, the door isn't locked or anything. Um, they could easily just move out as soon as the power outages happen and stuff, as soon as the murder and stuff like that. Like, they could have just moved out, but they didn't. Like, it didn't occur to them. Like, it's one of those things where when you're in the system, it's so hard to see out of it. It's so hard to come out of that herd mentality, that sort of thinking. And it's just, it's too much. So I just find it really interesting that none of them was able to think about moving out to see outwards. Like, they look off their balconies and look outside every single day. But they never truly look outside. Except for Toby. Um, and that's another character that, you know, uh, take, will take a while to talk about. Um, which I will after this little break. I'll see you guys in a bit. Basic facts Can you show 
Welcome back, everyone. Um, and I hope you guys liked the song that I chose. Um, I thought it would really suit the vibe of what we're talking about, considering how it really messes with your head and comfortably numb. Sort of, um, it gives the vibe of, um, I don't know, just ignoring everything and just chilling or like taking drugs. <laughs> Same thing, I guess. Um, but anyway, I know I said we were going to talk about Toby, but I just recently remembered something and I really wanted to revisit Robert Lang real quick. So I said that Robert Lang was the most truest tenant that you could ever encounter, right? Which is true. Him and Royal are the only truest tenant there because they understand the building the most. Um, I just wanted to talk about the progression of his character because like I said, he is quite... He's quite screwed up, um, but we never notice that he's screwed up because he hides it. He hides it really well. Um, and like when you first see him, he's like this cold sort of guy who is always like perfectly dressed and he, he's like in a suit and he's a doctor and he, he pretty much shows no emotion at all. He's like, he's real, and like the whatever emotions that you see him are at parties and it's like quite, you can tell it's very superficial, like it's um the polite stranger talk, you know, like when someone talks to you and you ask about your day, about your day and whatever, they would like, um of course you would answer and like talk to them, like empty small talk. And uh, you would have, like, this fake small smile on your face, right? And that's the same with Lang. And I feel like it's always like that. Um, one dude said that... Wait, what was it? One dude said that Lang was hiding in plain sight, which I thought, like, really... It sort of hit me a little bit because he really is. Um, like I said, he's, like, a lion in sheep's clothing. Like, we have no idea what he's capable of, what he's thinking, because he's so well put together. But as the film goes on and as everything goes to chaos, you see him slowly, slowly slip that composure away, right? Um, he goes through quite a bit of altercation in the, in like both parts of the film, the beginning and the end. In the beginning, um, one of the first altercations we see him in is with, um, uh, the architect's, uh, summon. Uh, or, like, servant, or, I don't know, worker, his name is Simmons, and Simmons calls him a social climber, and basically, ha- like, tells him the stairway is closed, and, like, you know, tries to provoke Lang, basically, and Lang is, like, you can tell that he's really, like, angry, he's really, um, peeved, and he, it looks like he wants to punch him in the face, but he doesn't, he just, when the light goes out, he takes advantage of that, and he moves on. The kid that he's with, Toby, asks him why he didn't punch him, and then, Robert's like, you know, I ask myself the same thing, pretty much. And, um, you know, you can see that he shows a really decent amount of control there, and he, like, a really strong amount of control, and he's well-dressed, and he is really put together, right? However, later on in the movie, when you see him slowly deteriorating in his, uh, mentality and his, like, well-suited mask, he is in the supermarket where everyone is fighting in the dark and, you know, doing violence for the sake of violence, because why not, right? He wanted to get a can of paint, and um, someone obviously fought him for that can of paint. And this is one of the first times we see him doing anything violent. And he fights this dude over, like, he punches this guy multiple times in the face, and he yells, it's my paint. And he's, like, super possessive over this can. Toby is once again there to witness everything, and Toby was like, uh... You kind of hit him really hard, eh? Now he's he said like he's pretty sure that he busted that dude's eyeball or whatever, and I just thought that contrast was really nice. Well, it was really strong from um, f- 
from from uh, Robert using the dark in the beginning to avoid an altercation to, in this case, using the dark to accelerate and end an altercation with using physical violence. And um, that really, you know, shows the start of his composure crumbling. The day that the high-rise sort of does, like, this twist where, you know, it goes from thinly-veiled insults to straight-up assault, um, the day it sort of the invisible line was crossed, I guess, was the day that the one of the residents, Monroe, killed himself. He jumped off on one of the higher floors, and he landed on a car, and he killed himself. After that night, um, everything just got flipped on its head, and everyone started acting differently. It wasn't exactly a sudden shift. Everyone was already feeling it. It was just now they were... It felt like they finally had permission to do so. It felt like that was the the gun flaring go, you know, to a race and they could finally be whatever they wanted and this is their true selves or whatever. And what I find really cool is how the director used the dark in the film um, because in the very beginning, uh, Wilder kills a dog in the pool, right? He The power is out and it's dark and he takes advantage of the dark to kill the dog. And I just find it really cool how they use the dark, because the dark um, sort of symbolizes how um, when people think no one is looking, they will do whatever they want. They will, when the dark is there, their humanity isn't, right? Where there's no light, so there is no humanity. It all strips away to the baser instincts, where you want to prove that you are the stronger one, where you want to prove that you are superior in every way. And in a building where by the end of it there's no power or water or anything at all, you are completely animal and you are no longer human, basically. Um, the day that um, the guy killed himself, there was a party going on on the lower floors, and it was really rambunctious, and it was really out of hand, it was crazy, it was great. Um, and uh, Lang sort of let loose a little bit there too. Not too loose, but he was partying for once, actually dancing. Um, and then after after Monroe killed himself and whatever, the top floors, uh, or the penthouse specifically, they had a discussion, uh, Royal not included, because Royal is willfully ignoring everything that's going on around him. Um, they had a discussion and they're like saying how the lower floors are provoking them with how good they are at partying and how now they need to, you know, they need to fight back with a better, bigger, way more serious, no, like, you know, way more extravagant party. And I just thought, like, why? Like, what is the reason? There's literally no reason to do that. They're not provoking you or anything. Uh, or, or I guess they are, but, like, they're sort of making problems within themselves, like, problems that could just be easily resolved if everyone wasn't so covered and, like, wasn't so overtaken by hubris and all this greed and, you know, trying to prove that you're the bitter alpha, I guess. It's just, it's such a pain, you know? Like, it's kind of painful to see, um... And, like, the parties you can see devolve into something else entirely. Because in the beginning of the film, the lower head, the, like, the lower parties are, like, you know, normal parties, whatever, with wine and whatever. The top floor parties is, like, real pretentious. Everyone's wearing, like, these olden day clothes, like, with the white wigs and the rebunctious, uh, I keep saying rebunctious for some reason, uh, the big, like, uh, voluptuous dresses and, you know, the white 
powdered face and stuff. You know, you know those types of parties. And it was real bloody pretentious, and it's like, you know what, what the freak. But by the end of the film, both parties from both floors or both sides of the factions, um, they look pretty much exactly the same. Everyone's letting loose. They're doing whatever the freak they want. Everyone's having major like orgies, and um, you know, taking over the supermarkets and whatever. And it's just. It's a real um, screwed up fest, is what I'm saying. And um, I don't even know what's going on anymore. I mean, I never knew what was going on, but like, it was just crazy. And yeah, like I said, the way that the director uses the dark to just show the worst sides of people and the flickering lights, and it was just, it was so, it was so well done. It was so well done. Like I said, the film is so aesthetically pleasing in terms of, like, seeing all this chaos happen. Like, you can read it, and it's nice, descriptive and stuff, but it's always nice to actually see it happen. And, um, and it was great. Uh, but there are, like I said, there are some parts in the film that you can't exactly capture, um, because the book does it better. Like, for example, I kind of, okay, this, this sounds really, really weird, but I really do kind of like the Alice plot quite a lot. Um, and before you attack me or judge me, um, it just, it suits so well with Robert's character, is what I'm saying. Um, it really shows what type, uh, it really, really shows the deteriorating humanity, is what I'm saying. Because in, in the film, he ends up, um, going with Helen. And Lang talks about, like, hygiene, because, like, Lang's apartment is empty, except for his bed. Um, he's got boxes, towers of boxes that he just never unpacked. And, um, he's got paint, like, by the end of it, uh, he's got, like, grey paint littered on the walls, on his clothing and everything. He, he stopped dressing so well, he stopped showering, and he was like, um, and, like, he found comfort in the fact that his, he started smelling like body odor, his room started smelling like piss and stuff like that, because it belonged to him. Like, it marked his territory, you know, and it wasn't just him, you know, everyone sort of viewed it like that, like, he found, he found the parking lot, he didn't like how it smelled, it, it, the, the air was like knives to him, if I remember correctly, that's what the book said, um, because it was like, it was like really sterile, it was clean, and it, he didn't like that, because it was empty ground, no one owned it, and it was too much, you know, um, whereas, like I said, humans are just, or like, yeah, humans are just so greedy and covenant, and like, and territorial, like, and you need to cover your own territory. And in this place where, like, everyone's getting raped in every corner of the building, right? Um, people are looking for shelter and stuff like that. And his sister, um, was looking for shelter and she went to her brother for protection. In the book, he was actually offered to lead the lower class well, the lower floor faction of rebellion against the top floor, but Robert, um, refused to be a part of it because he thinks himself sort of above these sort of conflicts because he wants to step aside, but he doesn't ha he has no idea that he's, like, one of the centers. Even if no one else sees it, he is one of the main people of this whole shebang, I guess you would say. I mentioned hubris uh, before and self-importance and stuff like that, and I wanted to say, like, I think the most important character, or, well, 
I wouldn't say important, but the character that comes to mind when I talk about that is um, Jane. Uh, she is the actress uh, in this film. She um, In this film, she is a famous actress who uh, came to live in the high-rise to sort of prepare for her next role, which is a sad actress living alone. You know, a depressed actress living alone. So that's what Jane, the actress, was trying to prepare herself to do. So uh, that was when everything was fine. Uh, but you know how I said Wilder killed that dog in a pool? Yeah, well, that dog just so happened to be Jane's dog. And when we find out that that dog died, um, Jane was obviously devastated because she viewed that dog as her own kid, you know. Um, and she was sobbing by the pool and it was... You know, it would be heartbreaking. I mean, it is. But um, it was more pathetic than anything because even though you can tell that she was genuinely upset and sad and, like, just heartbroken over the entire thing, when she was crying, she was actually looking in the mirror and she was examining herself while she was crying. And I remembered that she was actually studying the role of an actress being sad alone in her apartment, right? So this is her still working even though she was genuinely feeling sad. And can you just take a minute to, like, really think about that? Her dog just died. Like, killed. Drowned in a pool. And she decided that she needed to study her face for her work, then to really take the time to really analyze this feeling, to sit with it and be sad like a normal person. She wanted to be, I guess, quote-unquote, uh, authentic, I guess. I don't know. I just thought there was just something so... There was something so ingenuine about it, so disgusting. I mean, like, yes, when you want to act, you got to do research and stuff like that. I know the person who plays um, Robert Lang, uh, Tom Hiddleston, I know that when he was preparing for this role, he actually went to real autopsies and had to, you know, and actually witnessed how they did it and, like, you know, immersed themselves, immersed himself in those sorts of situations, right? And, like, yeah, respect whenever actors do that. Um, and, like, no blame at all, of course, if you want to do that. But, like, this is, like, a real genuine tragedy that Jane had to go through. Can you just live that tragedy for the moment and not take advantage of it to further your own work? If you did want to further your own work and actually feel that genuine sadness, you can you know, fabric, well, I wouldn't say fabricate it, but, like, you know, make the, make the situation purposeful, like, you, like, for example, how you went to a funeral, oh, no, I don't know, going to someone's funeral, I don't know, some, going to someone's funeral is a better idea, actually, wait, no, ignore that, um, like, I don't know, I don't know anything about acting, but just, you know, like, go do something with the intention of doing it, instead of taking this personal opportunity, well, this personal uh, misfortune as an opportunity. That's what it is. Sorry, I can't, I can't think. My brain is all fogged up with me being sick. Or it's always fogged up, to be honest. But, you know what I mean? But I just thought it was just so disgusting for her to do. Like, there's a time and a place, right? Her dog just died, her companion, her kid. Um, and she, the first thing she thought of was her work. Like, Come on, how insensitive can you be? Even as even if it's just for you, how how insensitive can you be? Like that that took a while for me to sort of sort of wrap my head around. But I thought it was sort of genius the like how they addressed it that way. Uh because 
people do that. Not exactly with a dog per se, but you know, people obviously deal with grief differently, but people also use their personal terrible circumstances to further their own careers, for their own selfish gain. And it's um it's a little bit sad. And seeing it in such a a harsh, truthful, slap in the face manner, it really does leave your face stinging, you know, sort of thing. Um because it's there's no filter at all. There's no way to soften the blow. Uh Bellard and the director was just like, Yep, not nah, this is society, this is what we do. Deal with it. <laughs> If you recall, um, I, I uh, mentioned a character, Toby, before, um, who is, I guess, one of the smartest people in the building. He is a kid, actually. Um, school age, I'm not quite sure exactly how old he is, but he sort of looks 12 to 13 years old-ish, something, something around those lines. And he is the daughter of Charlotte, who uh, is the first person Wilder raped, I think. And... Um, Basically, the plot twist later on, we find out that Toby's dad is uh, actually Royal himself. Um, And Charlotte believes that Toby got his brains from Royal because Royal was quite an innovative man and Toby is really curious and he asks a lot of questions. And that's what made me, that's what what made Toby stand out, uh, in my opinion. Because in compared to the rest of the kids, he is quite different. The kids uh, like to follow around each other, like they like to have fun, and they follow what the adults say, and it's like a hard mentality sort of stuff. And you can't really blame them, they're kids, and they, you know, they grow up in this terrible situation, you can't blame them for how they, you know, grow up, right? But Toby was different. He was really blunt and he asked questions that other people would be afraid to ask and um like for example whenever when he met Robert at first he he was like uh I heard your sister's dead did you kill her you know like those sort of things that you wouldn't normally ask because you know they're rude but no he was curious and he was like his logic was if I don't know the answer to something I'm gonna search for it and I'm gonna ask for it it doesn't matter if it's rude or not it's just a search for knowledge right it was he was really objective about it and it was quite interesting. Uh, and he didn't believe in... He didn't believe in heaven. He didn't believe in all that fake stuff. And I thought that was... um. It kind of says a lot about his character. He's a realist, right? Um, and he sort of looks to the future using the using this kaleidoscope that he had. And I'd like to think that he is the future, maybe. Um, I know there was something important about the kaleidoscope that I'm not quite sure about... Um, and there was something really important about Toby's character, but I haven't, I haven't analyzed High Rise as much as I want to. It's just, it's so much, and it's actually quite difficult. And I wish I had, like, some expert on hand that I could talk to about this. Um, but no one I know personally has actually read the book or have seen the movie. So it's just, it's really hard. Um, so I can kind of, like, only... I can only, like, rely on how I think and what the internet says. And the internet says a lot, but it's really hard to narrow things down. Like, sometimes you read so much, and you read so much conflicting opinions that you don't even know what is what anymore. Um, and it can be a bad thing, and it can be a good thing. Like, it could be either or. But yeah, so I sort of wish I had someone to bounce off ideas on. But uh, it's a little tough uh, to find someone who knows this stuff, you know? Um, so we can only hope and rely on the internet and my shoddy, uh, notes. Anyway, 
Toby. Uh, I think, I think, like I said, I could be wrong. I think he is what, he is the, he represents, the, I think, the small percentage of society who asks questions and who wants to move forward, who knows what's wrong and what's right, and wants to do something about it. Like a futurist, I guess, you know? Um, a futurist um, who is different than how Royal and Robert are futurists, if you know what I mean. Speaking of futurists, though, when, and I think this is the same in the book, though I'm not quite sure, uh, when Robert first moved in, and I do have to remind you, the high-rise building is a brand new building. No one's ever lived here before. But when Robert first moved in, um, on one of the empty walls, it wasn't actually empty, there was this tack, you know, on the wall. Uh, as if someone had hung something there and left the tack behind. Except, like I said, no one has lived there before. It's a brand new building. And, um, I read this thing online and it basically said how this tack was supposed to represent how, even though it's a new building, things will repeat and be reused and how history will repeat itself. Because what happened was, uh, Lang used that tack to hang a picture of his sister and the next resident will use that tack to hang a picture of whatever and it will repeat and repeat and repeat until the building eventually falls down, right? And in this case, that symbolizes that this um, society ideal or whatever, history will just repeat itself. It will just re reuse and recycle, right? Um, different people of authority will be up top, but it will basically be the same gist. And it's the same with Royal and Robert. Because Royal fell down the chain. He is dead. He is gone. But the next person who comes up to power, Robert Lang. And you know what changes? Absolutely nothing. He continues to take up Royal's work. He continues with the blueprints, and he wants to do, like, this new society of power or whatever. But it's the same thing. Different people of power, but society never changes. Um, and going back to what... Bellard actually wants. Like I said, the whole purpose of the high rise is to, how do I say this? Is to show where humanity will go with, when you're filled with nothing but conveniences, right? Where you're not challenged to do better and dream bigger and, you know, just do whatever you want, right? Everything is at the tip of your fingers, you know? You don't even need to leave the building for to do whatever. You have water, you have heat, you have electricity in your buildings, and if you wanted to go to the gym, oh, you don't even need to leave your floor. You can go across the corridor and the gym is right there. The supermarket, oh yeah, just go down like two levels or whatever. There, the supermarket is right there. All you need, restaurants and everything, all within one building, right? And... I just think that this is so amazing because, like I said, this book was written in 1975 in Bellard's vision of the future. And it's crazy because it's not actually that far off from what the future ended up being, like our present, right? Because right now we have everything at the tips of our fingers. While not everyone necessarily lives in a high-rise building, we don't actually need to live the house, leave the house technically to get whatever the frick we want. Because everything is actually 
way easier than being, you know, walking across the corridor because all you need to do is open your phone, open Uber Eats, click order. There it is. Food is going to arrive at your front doorstep. You know, you want to go somewhere, you don't even need to drive. You've got, you know, a normal Uber. Uh, and like I said, the each house has heat, water, electricity and everything. And that is just people who are comfortable with their lives. You know, they still go out to work every day. Um, what about those people who are, like, so bloody rich, who don't even know what to do with their money, you know? They pray, they practically wipe their butts with these cash, while other people are, like, struggling so much. Anyway, I just thought um, Bellard's vision was just quite quite accurate um, in the, uh, with what we're doing, because right now... Yeah, I do have to say we have gotten quite a bit lazier, you know? We, like, we've we've stopped dreaming so big because everything is just so much easier. Like, we've stopped trying hard to do things because why do, the, why do things the hard way when the easier way is there? We like to take shortcuts, you know? We like to cheat on our exams or whatever. We like to do the cheaper option, you know, where you can get quick results. I mean, speaking of quick results, look at how social media is like nowadays, right? TikTok is the biggest social media platform at the moment. You know why? Because they do one minute videos, you know, quick likes, quick views. It doesn't matter if it's truthful. It doesn't matter if it's harmful. As long as you get the views, as long as you get the likes, people are going to sponsor you. You're going to remain on people's For You page and you're going to remain relevant. doesn't matter if it's a good type of relevance because publicity is publicity. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. You're going to get that bank. And I just thought that was just so, so interesting because Bellad pretty much hit the nail right on the head. Um, and I got to say, mad respect <laughs> for getting it right so well. It's quite hard to capture the cruelty of um, the human heart, I would say. Like, for for example, right, um, later on in the film, uh, the high-rise, uh, the top-level people want to get rid of Wilder, because Wilder is getting out of control. He's going quite wild. <laughs> see, see what I did there? No. Anyway, <laughs> um, he's getting out of their control, and um, they don't care the fact that he's raping people and he's doing stuff. What they care is the fact that he's raping the wrong type of people. He raped um, Charlotte, and Charlotte is off-limits because Charlotte is uh, Royal's woman, right? So um, you, you see that? It's like a selective sort of cruel. Like, they want to kill... They want to kill... Um, well, not kill exactly, but they want to get rid of Wilder because he raped a woman, but not because he raped a woman, but because of who he raped. You know what I mean? Um, and he's sort of going out of control. So what they did was they asked Robert Lang to lobotomize um, Wilder, but Lang has like this moral compass, even some bit weird, um, that he doesn't do anything that isn't justified, right? So he has to do a psychology check first before he does anything. And his verdict was that turns out Wilder is actually the most uh, the most sanest person in the building. But while they were doing this uh, psychology check, uh, Wilder actually said a few things to him. Um, like uh, he was talking to Lang and was saying how he didn't feel like he actually fit in to this um, this place, and how the people who uh, actually thrive 
and the people who need to look out for are actually the self-restrained ones. Um, they're the real dangers. They're the advanced species and a neutral habitat, you know? They're thriving. They're professionally detached. And obviously he was talking about, well, um, he was talking about Lang. Lang tried to apologize that, you know, uh, that he thought that way, but Wilder was like, nah, you're not sorry. And for once we see Lang for who truly is and he says, yeah, maybe you're right. And it's just, Oh, it's just, it's so weird because at one point, um, Lang has a conversation with Royal and they're having a normal conversation about the building and, you know, uh, they're just in a civil moment, you know, candlelight dinner and it's completely civil except there's a woman screaming in pain in the background and they do not acknowledge it at all. He, the architect is asking for opinions and Lang praises it like so much. And he, he, um, he refers to the building like a heart in a way. Uh, no, 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 not heart, like a brain, right? He, so he's saying how he's the moving cell. The elevator is the heart and the, uh, hallways are like the neuro, the neurological pathways and stuff like that. And he's just so passionate about it, which is another way, another place where he and the architect parallel in character. And it's just, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And there's just so much more to talk about this. And I know I just, I dabbled a little bit here and there. I never actually really got deeper into it. So I think I might revisit this again in the future and try and explain it properly. But there's just so much aspects that I could talk about that I can't actually fit into one episode. Um, but yeah, I hope it wasn't too confusing. And if anyone has actually read the book or watched the movie and you want to talk about it with me in a future episode, just like hit me up. Um, but yeah, I think we're running out of time today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed and I wasn't, you know, too confusing for you all. But yeah, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you all for joining me today on Thoughts and Theories. I hope you've learned something new or taken away something to think about. I hope to see you all next time. Till then... This has been Thoughts and Theories with Asha Ama Asri. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.